You are called to be a disciple who rules and reigns with Jesus as a king. You were called to raise disciples who will rule and reign with Jesus as a king. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12, he says, if you endure, you will reign with him. In Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples, if you stay with me, you will eat and dine at my table in my kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In Revelation 5, it says, there is a kingdom that is being stirred up of priests who are going to reign with Christ. You were called to be a disciple who rules and reigns with Jesus as a king. One of the greatest generals of all time. His name was George Castriotti. He goes by the name of Skanderbeg. Skanderbeg was born in Albania in the 1400s. And when he was 10 years old, his own father sold him as a hostage to the Ottoman Empire. I have a picture of him. He's become a hero in Albania. If you want to zoom in on his face real quick. I don't know a man who carries the spirit of Skanderbeg more than Elder Baj. You can see they made a statue of him. There you go. Baj, when it's your time to be with the Lord, I'm going to make one of these for you. His own dad sold him to the Ottoman Empire when he was 10 years old. And he was raised up in this Islamic Ottoman Empire. By the age of 20, because he was skilled and he had nothing else to do but to learn war, he became a general in the Ottoman army. But see, Skanderbeg had this deep desire in his heart as the Ottomans were beginning to decimate throughout Albania and and head west. Skanderbeg said, I have to reclaim the land that my father lost. So when he was 20 years old, Skanderbeg decided to rebel against the Ottoman army. He took 300 men with him and he went to an Ottoman stronghold in Albania called the Castle of Cruz. It was there with his 300 men that he kicked out the Ottomans and they were not happy. So the Ottoman Empire, they 
gathered together under Mehmed II, 100,000 men to come and try to get their castle back. See, at this point in time, there were about 1,500 men that rallied around Skanderbeg. They saw what type of leader he was. They saw what type of visionary he was. They said, I want to be a man like him who is dangerous to the enemy. They came in with all their former merits. And this is what Skanderbeg told them as they were trying to jockey for position in his army. He said, I will judge your merits when I see your sword smoking with the blood of the Turks. The Ottoman Empire came against this castle three or four times, and not once could they take it back. People say that when they were coming against this castle, this stronghold, that Skanderbeg would take a small group of guys and they would go out and harass and taunt the enemy as they were trying to reclaim what was theirs. See, Skanderbeg went 24-0 and 0 against the Ottoman army. When he died, he used to he wore this crown that had a goat head on it as he was taunting the Ottomans. And when he died, they took off his crown and they put an inscription on it, and that inscription said, Skanderbeg, blessed by God, King of Albania, terror of the Ottomans. Man, if the crown that I wear that I laid before my king would say terror of the enemy. See, when Skanderbeg died, it took about a month for everything that he built, for, for, for fighting off the Ottoman Empire for 25 years, it took about a month for everything to come crashing down. And the reason for that is compromise. The men who once stood with him and said, no, I want to be a terror to the enemy like you, found themselves in a position of compromise and everything came crashing down. See, we can come in a place like this and we can get excited about what God is doing. We can become excited about being a terror to the enemy, being dangerous disciples, ones who aren't afraid to confront danger. But if we compromise, it can all come crashing down. See, compromise, what we mean by compromise is accepting a standard that is lower than what the word prescribes. That's what we mean by compromise. So you were called to be a disciple who rules and reigns with Jesus as a king. We all love to hear this. We want this. We want to be in his kingdom. Everybody wants to be a king. 
That's why they name places like Burger King, Beef King, Sushi King. I want to ask you, are you the king of compromise? To reign as kings, therefore we must endure. But compromise weakens our resolve and sabotages our perseverance. The Bible focuses more on the 500-year period the reign of the kings than the other 3,500 years that the Old Testament covers, by far. To miss the principles that we're supposed to learn from the period of the kings would be like missing the spotlight at a play. There's a reason that the Bible focuses so much on the kings and on this period. To ignore When the Bible says, when the Bible references a king who did more evil than any other king, that would be to miss a big clue about how to make it or how not to do it. We see in Ahab a king of compromise. He became so compromised in every way that the son he produced was a complete coward. You see, the the messages have been leading up to what we're going to talk about tonight. And it's been interesting because I've been asking the Lord to show what it it is that he's speaking through the messages because each year he always weaves a message even within what's preached from the other pastors. And it's been so clear that we have to deal with the, the stuff that's going on in our own heart because the times are requiring us to deal with this so that we can produce kingly disciples who will confront danger. See, the king of Syria and the house of Ahab had been at war for years. And in a surprising turn of events, the commander of the Syrian king's army, Naaman, humbles himself and travels to the king of Israel to be healed of his terminal disease, leprosy. Clearly, God was setting up a moment to display his power. Let's read about it in 2 Kings 5, verses 6 through 7. Pastor Eric said that many times when we go through tough seasons that we can feel entitled to some comforts. Man, that message about Gehazi, boy, that got me. I was moved as you guys were talking about it in my heart to say, no, there's, there's probably several places in me that are like that. You know, growing up, I, I'd, I'd see similarities between maybe me and Peter or me and Nicodemus, naturally. 
But the more that I read about guys like Gehazi and Ahab, I see I'm a lot more like them than I wish I was. But this is the beautiful thing about the word is that as you read it, it can, it can serve as a warning to you. Hey, this is the road that you are going down. If you don't cut this off, it will produce this. Look at what, what gets produced from the house of Ahab. Starting in verse 6, it says, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Yes, a chance to display the power of God. Yes. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he didn't say yes. He didn't pump his fists in victory. It says he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's trying to seek a quarrel with me. How did this man, a king of Israel, react to this divinely appointed moment? He tears his clothes in outrage. Reveals his confusion about who he is. Did you hear him say, am I God? And what he's capable of and in his fear and insecurity labels this cry for help as a threat. This is cowardice on display. But we all know that no man is formed in a vacuum. This was a son of Ahab. A product of a man defined by compromise. Coward! See, y'all may not know, but that single word cost us about 10 to 15 people in our church. But you have to ask why. If you're being called something that has nothing to do with you, it shouldn't offend you. If someone comes up to me and says, Nick, you are a woman. I would say, okay. I would not say, well, what do you mean? Why would you say that? Who do you think you are? It's when it strikes a chord that you react in your flesh. I had to ask myself after that, what in me provided safe harbor for cowards? The Lord is circumcising our hearts so that cowards don't feel the freedom to stay cowards around us. We're going to see what type of dad Jehoram had. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 16. We're going to kick off where we see Ahab's life begin. Now 
you should ask yourself that question that Pastor Slaughter just brought up. Am I a stronghold for cowards? It says in verse 29, In the 38th year of Esau, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel. You ready to start? Kings of compromise defer to sinful wives. Hey, we're from Chicago. We're not afraid to fight a little bit up here, all right? I want to tell you this. And we're not afraid to eat bread. All right, I softened you up a little bit. Now we're get back to business. Kings of compromise defer to their sinful wives. Instead of leading their wives into freedom, they defer to the slavery that they are trapped in. Did you see in the text, in verse 31, where it says that before it brings up Jezebel, it says that sin became a light thing for Ahab. Did you know something becomes lighter when you work out your muscles? For some of you, sin has become a light thing because you have been working out your rebellion muscle. And instead of repenting for your sin, you just continue to bask that it's become lighter and lighter and lighter. And you say things like, Brother, I, I sin, but I am being set free from shame. And I don't feel the way I used to about my sin because I am being set free from shame. You are a king of compromise. What the text says, the first manifestation of the weight of sin becoming lighter and lighter was in his marriage. Look at what it says. It says in verse, uh, we're going to pick up at the second half of verse 31, his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. See, did you know, if you are not destroying sin, you are developing it. 
You have two options. Either you destroy the sin that is in your life, or it will continue to become developed and developed and developed until it feels weightless to you. Men, stop harboring the sin that God is calling you to take out of your wife. Men, when you said, I do, you came into agreement with Ephesians 5, proclaiming that you are going to make your wife more holy. That you are going to wash her with the water of the word. We cannot accommodate sin in our wives. We have to eradicate it. Can I give you a couple signs That you are the king of compromise in your marriage. Here's the first sign. You stay in a season for too long to keep your wife away from what she fears. You stay in a season for too long. Some of you in here have been staying in a season for far too long. God has called you out. This isn't for you anymore. It's time to leave. It's time to leave. It's time to leave. But husband, you have become a king of compromise, and you are afraid to lead your wife through what she fears. You're staying in a season for too long. Samson was a man who stayed in a season for too long, and by Judges chapter 16, he didn't know that the presence of God left him. Man, have you been staying in a season for too long? That every time you mention it, every time you you bring it up, baby, this is the direction of our family. We have to go this way. There's some kind of breaks that are being hit. There's some sort of fear that begins to manifest. And instead of being the priest of your house and leading your wife through her fear, you stay in the season that God has called you out of. If that's you, you are a king of compromise. Maybe you don't stay in a season for too long, but you jump from season to season to season to keep your wife content in her flesh. But she wants this. I want to make her happy, so we're going to do this for a little bit. Okay, that's been worn out, and, and, and now we're going to do this a little bit. And, okay, we kind of got to the end of this, and it seems like this would make her happy. Man, I want to talk about these pointed things because it is happening in this room. We cannot afford to be men of compromise. We cannot afford to be kings of compromise any longer. We need to be disciples who are dangerous to the enemy, and we can never get there when we continue to be kings of compromise. Because here's the truth. You can either be a king of Christ or a king of compromise. You cannot have both. Staying in the season for too long. Jumping from season to season. Not letting righteousness take root inside of your marriage. Maybe instead you join in your wife's offense to validate her bitterness. 
Instead of eradicating her bitterness and leading her in the truth of the word, you join in her offense. You know what, sweetie? I, I think you're right about that person. You know, I have noticed the kind of snarl that they give us every time we walk by. You know, I, I do think that it's, it's probably been three or four weeks since they've said hello to us. You know what? what? We need to start distancing ourselves from these people until they can learn how to love. And, and you know what happens with that? It's, it brings this false unity, too. Oh, I'm so, you, you really do get me. I've forgotten how much I love you. I love you so much. We see this, this the same way, and it brings this false unity. Pastor said, hate has brought us together. Is that going on in your marriage, men? That the only time you and your wife feel happy, you feel unified, is when there's some sort of objection towards somebody else? My man, you are a king of compromise. Maybe, man of God, you have conceded your parental responsibility as a father to calm her control. You know that you're supposed to be discipling your kids. You know that you're supposed to be leading your kids. But you're worried if you take that control away from your wife that life for you is going to be a living hell. Men all over, well, my, my, my wife just deals with the children. You know, she's more of the disciplinarian with my kids. I, I just kind of want to encourage her in what she is doing. That is not how we raise disciples who are going to be dangerous to the enemy. Stop conceding to your wife's control. Pastor her through it. Lead her into freedom. Stop being a king of compromise. And this is what it will do to your house if you do not. It says in verse 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Get ready for this. In his days, Hale of Bethel built Jericho. This is a big deal. In Joshua 6, 26, there was a curse put on anyone who rebuilt Jericho. And under Ahab's watch, Jericho was rebuilt. Ahab led his family and his people into a curse. Men of God, do not lead your families into a curse. Today is the day to repent of being the king of compromise as you defer to your wife's sinful desires. This is what was going on with Ahab and Jezebel. So we see what's happening in Ahab's life. First, he defers to a sinful wife. What we're trying to produce is disciples who confront danger. That's what we're trying to produce. But what we're watching happen in Ahab's life is all these little things that added up to his son, not being a disciple who confronts danger, but a coward who freaks out when he has the opportunity to display the power of God. Because he doesn't know who he is, what he's capable of, and he's simply become a product 
of a king of compromise. The second thing that a king of compromise does is he rejects godly discipleship. Now, as, as I read through whenever we were, we took this passage a few months ago, the biggest thing that stood out to me over Ahab's life was how he treated these amazing godly men that were put in his life. Guys like Micaiah, guys like Naboth, guys like Jehoshaphat, guys like Elijah, how he treated these men. Because if he had simply let any one of these men in and said, hey, you've clearly got something I don't, please help me. I'm ruining this whole thing. It could have changed the course of his kingship. But at every step along the way, he rejected the help and the advice of godly men that were sent to teach, train, correct, and rebuke him. For those of you who are engaged in discipleship in this room, how did it start? Didn't you observe a godly man's convictions in action? Realize that you needed help growing and draw near to them? But what if you saw these godly men as a threat? What if you saw them as simply stepping stones to get what you want? What if their very presence troubled your compromised soul and you even began to see them as an enemy? That's what Ahab did. Let's start with Micaiah. Turn to 1 Kings 22. Look at verses 7 and 8. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man. Oh, praise God. There's one man. Good. Get that guy over here. Because we need to hear what the Lord has to say on this matter. No, that's not what he said. He said, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him. I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Poor Ahab. He said, I hate him because he never prophesies good about me, only evil. How badly... Did Ahab need this man in his life? Who did not care about Ahab's feelings, but would speak the truth to him no matter what. How badly did Ahab need this man in his life? Disciples, and that includes us pastors. We want Micaiah in our life. Amen? We need him in our life. To tell us what we may not want to hear. Think right now. When's the last time a man of God told you something you did not want to hear? You did not like it. How'd you make him feel? Ten minutes ago. Ten minutes ago. 
Psalm 141.5 says, Let a righteous man strike me. Micaiah didn't even strike him. He got struck in a previous story, in my opinion. He said, let a righteous man strike me. Psalm 141.5. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Don't fill your counsel with yes men. Get yourself a Micaiah so you don't turn out like Ahab. You want to know who my, my Micaiahs are? It's my elders. Mark Morrison, Ben Hefner. These are my Micaiahs. When we get in a room and we seek the face of the Lord and we bring a, a thought, a problem, a situation up to these men, Ben will start rocking back and forth, kind of shaking his knee a little bit. Mark will sit back and then he'll lean forward. This is what I think. And these guys will proceed to tell me the truth. They don't care how it makes me feel. When the spirit of God is moving, I can trust these men to simply tell me the truth, whatever it is. You need Micaiah's in your life. The amazing thing about Elder Mark, we call him Sniper Mark. And Sniper Mark has a Sniper Mark face. Yes. That he puts on when he's going to get you. Yes. <laughs> kind of. And whatever Sniper Mark says, you just received. Yes. He's a man of God. Amen. I love Ben Hefner with all of my heart. Come on. I have learned how to be a masculine, compassionate pastor. Yes. Through Elder Ben Hefner. Amen who does not mince words. The words he says carry a very heavy weight. Amen. We need men like this in our lives every day. Yes. Now, by Ahab's standards, they prophesy evil about us a lot. One of us more than the other, but let's continue. Too many ideas. But by the Lord's standards, they are healing me, anointing me, Guiding me in the truth, and I love them for it. They don't tell me what I want to hear. They tell me the truth. You know who else does this naturally? Buddy. Buddy doesn't care. He doesn't care if it hurts your feelings. He'll tell you. he love you. He'll smile. Call you bro while he tells it to you. Let's move on to the next one. Naboth. Now, you can pick out a few things that are not so great about Naboth, but I want to tell you, he got a few things very right. Look at 1 Kings 21. Let's read verses 1 through 3. It says, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden. Because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. This is priestly land. This belonged to him. Of course he would not give it up. What a foolish request. No, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. This is valuable to me. 
Verse 19 tells us that the Lord held Ahab responsible for this man's death. The Lord holds Ahab responsible for killing this man, even though he uses his wife to do it, simply turns, turns his face away. But man, here was a priest who valued his father's inheritance. You see, Naboth valued what had been handed down to him. How valuable would this lesson have been if Ahab had learned from this man instead of killing him? He was a king of Israel. What could he have done with what he inherited? The land, the people, the throne, the very word of God. Who knows what God could have accomplished if Ahab had learned why valuing his inheritance was so important. You know who embodies this quality? Mike Hutchinson. I want to tell you a story many of you may not know. So before Pastor Mike came up to Crystal Lake, we were not moving so strongly in the Holy Spirit. Well, I knew that Mike was going to be coming up and joining so I literally purposed in my heart, I said, we got to get serious about the Holy Spirit because Mike is coming. I promise you that is truth. And very shortly thereafter, that's when the Holy Spirit started moving in power there. It was simply the idea that Mike was coming. Now, those of you who know Mike know there are some precious things that he will not let go of. That's one of the things that I love most about him. He values what he has inherited. He values it. And I love that about him. Do you scorn the inheritance from your fathers and treat it as a light thing? One of my favorite stories about Justin and Abimbola is when they came, they listened to, what, a thousand messages in some months? In a year. That's valuing the inheritance from your father. Let's go to Jehoshaphat. Now in 2 Chronicles 17, it tells us that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the ways of his father, David. What a rare and precious statement that is. To walk in the ways of his father, David. He was a man who took his stand against idolatry and he walked in the commands of the Lord. And what did Ahab do with this righteous man? He used him as a pawn. What a powerful relationship this could have been. But Ahab didn't see a partner. He saw a pawn. You see, Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, while Ahab was the king of Israel. There could have been a great partnership here. But Ahab pulled Jehoshaphat in. And then had him dress up as a king, knowing that the people were coming after him. And he disguised himself. Now, if, if he really cared, he could have said, let's just both disguise ourselves. No, he was using him as a pawn. But how valuable could this relationship have been if he'd have seen him as a partner instead of a pawn? He cared nothing for Jehoshaphat. And his selfishness nearly got Jehoshaphat killed. Men, I can tell you, there are unspeakable treasures in allowing yourself to be discipled, trained, and rebuked by your partners, by those alongside you. 
they are not pawns to further your causes, but fellow soldiers given by God to build you up, to heal your wounds, and to draw you closer to the Lord. But if you, like Ahab, see them only as a means to your selfish end, you will waste your opportunity to be discipled by your equals. I rewrote Nick's Abigail traits. He didn't know that. Should I sit down for this? or <laughs> Nick, you are a powerhouse. You don't just look like Mr. Incredible. <laughs> the power of the Holy Ghost in your life is changing the world. And you are always ready to share him. You are God's man for the hour. Whether it is pouring yourself into children's ministry, youth ministry, jujitsu classes, or even Spanish ministry, you know what God has said is for now and you drive it forward. You are an amazing steward. You steward everything from your house to your cars, to your body, to your family, to the church, to the building, to the people. You are a fantastic steward. Your ears are tuned to the voice of the Lord. This is my only repeat from my first list because you have continued to excel in this. Like Samuel and David and the prophets of old, the Lord speaks to you because you listen and obey. And you love your wife and children so well. And you can tell because they are so proud of you. And they love you so dearly. Imagine what kind of man Ahab would have been if he'd have drawn Jehoshaphat in and said, hey, listen, man, let's do this together, right? Let's figure out what pleases the Lord. You told me to inquire of the Lord. We just did. I don't want to listen to this guy's advice, but I see that the Lord's favor is on you. Let's do this together. Let's walk through this together. What kind of a difference would that have made in Ahab's kingship? And finally, Elijah. Oh, Elijah's reputation speaks for itself. He embodies the prophets in the scriptures. This is a man who took on disciples, a powerful man who lived to please the Lord and no one else. Though Ahab's wife looked for any way she could to get rid of him, Elijah kept showing up in Ahab's life as the Lord led. And what did Ahab do? First Kings eighteen seventeen. Shows Ahab addressing Elijah, saying, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Whoa. First Kings 21 20. Have you found me, O my enemy? This man stood and watched Elijah call down fire and then slay the 450 prophets that Ahab was previously loyal to. And instead of him going in that moment, my God, I've been fighting for the wrong side. Elijah, will you teach me? Will you help me? Will you show me? Instead, over the next three years where there was peace, Ahab rebuilt 400 prophets and surrounded himself once again with yes men and rejected Elijah, calling him his enemy. What a tragedy. 
the most powerful man of God that Ahab would ever know, and he saw him as trouble and as an enemy. Imagine if Ahab had seen the call in Elijah's life and pulled him in close, as David did with Samuel or Nathan. What a profound impact this would have had on him. But instead, Ahab rejected him and made him his enemy. I've never known a more powerful man of God than Eric. The only trouble Pastor Eric has ever caused me was trouble for my flesh and my wicked desires. If you push away powerful men in your life, disqualify them, invalidate them, and make them your enemy, you will go down as Ahab, rejecting discipleship from godly men. Disciples are confronting danger in your life. Receive them. Even if you consider yourself past the season of discipleship, you are not. Every interaction you have with another man or woman of God is an opportunity for discipleship. These weren't long seasons that were happening. They were short interactions that were supposed to be ordained by God for the sake of righteousness. Are you trying to cut these out of your life? Because if you are, you're becoming a king or a queen of compromise. Can we keep moving? Kings of compromise fight to save the wrong thing. Let's look at 1 Kings 18. It says in verse 3, And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Somebody say amen. amen. And when Jezebel, oh, that Jezebel, cut off the prophets of the Lord, cut off, killed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water, because there was a drought, and to all the valleys, perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. Saving the animals, he should have been saving the prophets. See, Ahab didn't save the animals because he was a vegan. He didn't save the animals because he was a pet person. He saved them because they were worth something to him. He didn't want his wealth to become diminished. When your house is on fire, you don't run in to save the guinea pig. You save your children. Ahab wanted to save the wrong thing. What he wanted to save was himself. His kingdom, his wealth, Everything that he worked for, he wanted to save himself. Kings of compromise fight to save themselves. 
It says in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Are you trying to save your life? You're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Deuteronomy talks about a guy like this. Let's go there real quick. Deuteronomy 28. We're going to be in verse 54. Have you ever heard of like a Proverbs 31 woman? Have you heard that phrase before? Oh, man, she's such a Proverbs 31 woman. I want to marry her right now. Real quick, who's single in here? If you're single, raise your hand. Okay, everyone take out your camera phones. Take pictures. Know what church they're from. So you heard of a Proverbs 31 woman. I'm going to tell you about a Deuteronomy 28:54 man, and it is a bad thing. Run away from this guy. I hope you're ready for this. It's not good. The man who is the most tender. This means the man who is delicate, soft, weak, gentle, or fearful, and refined. This isn't like sophisticated. It's an adjective meaning dainty, sensitive like a woman. This is a Bible dictionary. It's not me. It refers to being neat. Ready for this? It is a word used to describe Babylon as a virgin daughter in her era of splendor and riches. That's Isaiah 47.1. Write that down. So you have a man who's tender, who's refined among you. And this is what this man does. You will begrudge food to his brother. This is a compromised king who only cares about himself. You will begrudge food to your brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left. Oh, did some of them die? Yes, they did. Let's see how. So that he will not give to any of them of the flesh of his children whom he is eating. Because he has nothing else left. This is the compromised king who fights to save himself. Do you fight to save yourself? Do you fight to save what you built up? Did you know that there's a war right now going on against holy masculinity? Our world is trying to raise up slack-handed, thin-necked, soy milk guzzling. That one was for you, Elder Baj. Mr. Sisters. (laughs) 
We are raising up men who are dangerous to the enemy. So the next time one of your brothers is acting like a Mr. Sister, you say, hey, bro, you're not a Deuteronomy 28:54 man. You are a man of God who is dangerous to the enemy. Saving themselves. Ahab was this type of man, are you? Instead of fighting to save souls, are you trying to save your salary? Instead of fighting to save your marriage, are you fighting to save your own materialism? Instead of fighting to save your relationship with God, are you trying to save your reputation? Because if you are, you are a compromised king. You are a king of compromise. So let's go back over the points that we've established so far. We see that a king of compromise defers to his sinful wife. Think about that for just a second. Deferring to your sinful wife to lead, you're doing whatever it takes to keep her happy. All these things, this and the next few that we're going to list, are adding up to a king of compromise who ultimately produces a coward. We're trying to show you the steps along the way so that you can go, oh, that's in my life. If I don't cut it out, I'll get a coward for a son. Because we're all going after disciples confronting danger, men who are dangerous to the enemy. This is what we want. So a king of compromise is deferring to his sinful wife. A king of compromise is rejecting godly discipleship. And a king of compromise is fighting to save the wrong thing. You should be searching your own heart right now. How am I doing these things? Because this will at some point be over. This message and this night. And you can go get in bed and put on your pajamas. But I'm telling you, these things will continue to grow in you. And they will get bigger and bigger and bigger until one day it's just too much. And you react like Jehoram did. When the time comes for you to show what kind of man you are. And you get the opportunity to put God's power on display in a moment. You'll be full of insecurity. You'll be full of fear. And you won't be ready to confront any dangerous thing. You'll be full of fear. And so we look at these things now and we address them in our life now. The fourth thing that a king of compromise does is he ceases to shepherd the flock. Look at 1 Kings 22. Verse 17. Boy, if this verse didn't jump off the page at Pastor Massey and I, if this hasn't been marinating in our hearts and minds for the past few months, and even longer than that before we got this assignment, look at verse 17. Now this is when Micaiah is called in to speak what is true to Ahab. 
It says in verse 17, and he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Say sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. What's left for sheep without a shepherd to do but just go home? A compromised king, a king of compromise, ceases to shepherd the flock. There's two ways that I'm going to give, and Pastor Massey will give a third. How you digress into ceasing to shepherd the flock. The first one is you harvest their strengths and you disregard them as a person. Look at 1 Kings 21, verse 2. Is this running out of battery? It's going in and out. The thumbs up. There it is. First Kings 21, 2. It says, and after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. He wanted to exchange Naboth's vineyard or his father's inheritance so that he could have a conveniently placed vegetable garden. Lie to me right now and tell me your ears don't perk up when someone you know to be wealthy starts coming around and your mind goes to what they could give to the church. Are you looking at people for what they can give you? You see, I thought about hitting this point, but it kept coming up in previous sermons. This tells me that there's something going on right now because I'm hearing it come up in other messages. It's taking advantage of people and using them for what you can get. Listen to me, men and women of God. In the last days, as evil people are going from bad to worse, and more and more people are walking away from the Torah, and the love of most is growing cold, people will become more and more lovers of themselves. You need to watch out for this in your life. When you start thinking about what you can get from someone else, you have stopped shepherding the flock. And you are now concerned with what you can get from them. The best way to describe this is devouring people. Dad, shepherd, are you harvesting your wife's strengths and disregarding her as a person? You stopped shepherding her. You're using her for what you can get from her, and you're not shepherding her anymore. Ceases to shepherd the flock. The next way, you look at people as stepping stones so that you can become great. Look at 1 Kings 22, verse 4. This is what I was talking about with Jehoshaphat earlier on. And he says in verse 4, he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. Now, what was this? This was a kind heart longing to help him. But what did Ahab do? Look at verse 30. 
It says, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle. But you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. What did Ahab do? He made Jehoshaphat pay his price. When you start seeing people as stepping stones so that you can become great, disciples, people in congregations, when you came into the church, do you size up who's at what level and see where you fit in so that you can ultimately make your way up to some top? Is that how you're thinking? Are you looking to position yourself relationally? Or have people become stepping stones to you? Godly men and women, how about at your jobs? Are you one kind of person in this setting? But then once you get into the workplace, people are stepping stones to you. You stop thinking like a shepherd when that happens. And you start looking to devour people. You have a price to pay that is yours alone to pay in your family, as a leader in your church, as a shepherd over your flock. And when you try to make someone else pay your price, that is not acceptable to the Lord. When you're this kind of shepherd, the people might as well go home. And that's what's happening all across this country. Devouring people, using them as stepping stones. And Micaiah stands among us and says, these are sheep without a shepherd. Just let them go home. And this is where they are. Everybody in their own home. Where have all the shepherds gone? Where have all the shepherds gone? And the sad thing is, the people are better off at home. These things could be summed up. It talks about Ahab. It says that he sold himself out. He didn't just sell his call out. He didn't sell his family out. He literally sold himself out to idolatry. That's how it can be summed up. We're going to get to the last point here. This is where we started. Go to 2 Kings 5. It says, it's the kings of compromise produce Cowardly sons. Remember, you were asked the question at the very beginning, have you become a stronghold for cowards? The disciples that you are producing, that you are raising, are they cowardly? 2 Kings 5. Like Pastor Slaughter read in verse 7, he says, Am I God? This is Jehoram. The cowardly son, he despairs when he hears bad news. He tears his clothes. Is this your first step when you hear bad news? You immediately go to despair. This is the mark of a coward. This is what Jehoram did. Tore his clothes. Then look at what happens. Am I God? Jehoram exempts himself from the supernatural. 
when there is an opportunity for healing, when there's an opportunity when you're in public for prophecy, when there's an opportunity to declare the gospel, when you are in a place that you are unfamiliar with, do you step up and align yourself with the supernatural or do you distance yourself? Do you look to create moments for God to move? If you distance yourself from the supernatural, you are acting like Jehoram. Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure the man of leprosy? See, he cracks when he was called to engage. When it's time to engage in spiritual warfare, do you crack and turn to your comfort? Do you go back to the sins that should have been behind you seven years ago? It's time to engage. It's time to raise disciples who are going to be dangerous. It says, only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Jehoram relabels the situation. You see how he tries to wiggle out of the healing? He tries to wiggle out of the supernatural. He just tries to relabel it. You know, this situation wasn't really, you know, about the healing. He's just trying to pick a fight with me. And I'm going to be the righteous person who is standing strong. And it's actually more like this. He is relabeling what is clearly going on because he is afraid to engage as a king. Because he's the king of compromise. You ready to see how we should engage in these things? Look at what Elisha does. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, who was a dangerous disciple to the enemy, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? See, Elisha considers despair to be a disgrace. Maybe you're here saying, I don't want to be the king of compromise. I want to be the king of Christ, the king of conviction, a king of power. I want to be a king who is dangerous. Where do I start? Well, you can start with your own heart and your own perspective. That when trials come your way, that you will put joy uh, on your face and you will smile and you will go through it in prayer and in fasting. That you bring your brothers and sisters around you to war. This is what Elisha is doing. He considers despair to be a disgrace. He says, let him come to me now. You see, he invites the opportunity for healing. Is this your move? When there's an opportunity for deliverance, there's an opportunity for healing, there's an opportunity to give and release a prophetic word that you invite it? Bring them to me. Yeah, they're really sick. Bring them to me. No, but you don't, they, 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 they're like, really, bring them to me. That is what Elisha is standing for. That is what it's going to take to be dangerous to the enemy. He says, 
that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Is there still a prophet in Sugarland? Is there a prophet in Victoria? Is there a prophet in Crystal Lake? See, we want the world to know that prophets still exist and the supernatural nature of God is alive and well. This is how we are dangerous to the enemy. One of the best parts of this story is when he goes to confront Naaman, he doesn't even go himself. He sends his messenger to do it. See, part Part of our opportunity is to provide an avenue for others to activate their faith. Elisha trusted in the Lord that what he said was going to happen, and now he was sending someone else in to activate their faith. But you have to go in the right order. Don't delegate to someone else what God is clearly speaking to you. This is how we become dangerous to the enemy. This is how we become like Skanderbeg, a terror to the Ottomans. This is how we stand tall as a champion of Christ. And so we're going to respond to this. We're going to worship the Lord a little more.